Hello and welcome to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. This is episode 24 of the most influential weekly podcast to come out of the Saskatchewan business community. On each episode, Paul Martin, business commentator and the chair of Martin Charlton Communications, brings us the stories behind the headlines and explains why each story matters to you. On today's episode, leadership and the importance of how we're not just here to lead through our actions, but inspire using tools such as storytelling. Paul, leadership is is really your bag, and it's something that I look to you for and from the stories of others that you also share. We, you raise an interesting point because there is um, as much a, a degree of inspiration as there is perspiration in leadership. I often say it's five uh, percent inspiration, ninety-five percent leadership, and and I believe there's some merit in that. But every once in a while, you encounter someone who is uh, batting well above their five percent weight weight level, if I could put it that way, or punching above their level, and that. They really stand out for you. People who have words that do inspire. I mean, obviously, they walk the walk as well, but they do leave you with something that is um, indelible. Uh, you just remember it, and and it does lead you somewhere. And here we are. You know, I'm going to recount a couple of experiences that I've had that I found uh, sort of uh, inspirational, and, and some of them as far back as three decades, and they're still quite fresh in my mind. So it tells you how strong they are. And leaders should not underestimate that. And I think sometimes, too, when we, we think about, um, you know, when we look at the list of leaders, who are the world's greatest leaders, yada, yada, are the ones that are memorable. I mean, not very far from the top of the list is the likes of Winston Churchill, uh, you know, John Kennedy, maybe uh, globally. And, and they do have with them uh, a repertoire of inspirational words. And Churchill's famous for the speeches and Kennedy challenging America to, uh, you know, to go head to head with what was the Soviets back then in the space race. And uh, underlying the message for Kennedy was, you know, the U.S. had fallen behind technologically, and this was the inspirational piece to uh, fire up the folks to get them back uh, into a leadership role and get them to the front of the parade again. And it was the notion of going to the moon and back. And and uh, so words are powerful, and they do lead you in certain directions. So a couple that I want to share today are uh, ones that have, uh, you know, they kind of overlap, and that's why I like them. And one's a very local story, and one's a very not local story, and uh, it was a, a fellow named Bob Schultz. Uh, Bob, when he retired uh, from the Navy SEALs, was number two in the system. So he had uh, moved up the ranks uh, significantly. And and uh, I remember jokingly say, saying to him, uh, you know, here's something that a lot of people don't understand. When you get to the very highest echelons of the military, uh, two colonels vie to be a general, for example. One gets the job. The other one actually gets retired. They don't want also rands laying around. So uh, you roll the dice sometimes when you're going for your career. So he said, you know, I went, took a run at being the number one in the Navy SEALs. And, and, and he said, my best friend was the other guy on the other side. And, I, and he got it. And he said he probably should have because I was more a military guy. He had better understanding of what was going to be coming if he would have got the job, which was managing the politics of Washington and the Pentagon. So he said he navigated political waters better than I did, and he was the right choice. So I said to uh, Bob, did they fire you after that? And he kind of smiled, and he said, well, sort of. 
uh, and he said I had 28 years in, and so they sent me to the Naval Academy to teach for two years so I could get my 30. And he went on to teach at San Diego U, and uh, after that, and he said it was great training ground to do a university uh, educator after. But, you know, his time there was, uh, he, he would not have been one of these guys who you would have said would stand on a on a soapbox and make a speech that would, you know, a thumper of a speech that would motivate the troops. He was never that kind of a guy. He was more about actions, speaking quietly and, uh, and, and that kind of stuff. And he, he had those some strong views on the way things would work. So through the course of his career, he had worked in all of the various uh, areas of the, the Navy SEALs. And, you know, those of us who follow this stuff only through the movies, I mean, we have a, a bit of an understanding of what, it's like there, uh, but probably not the fullest. I, I certainly came away with a broader understanding of how the SEALs operate after he had been to talk to us than I did before. So he came to Saskatchewan. He made uh, four presentations, two in uh, Saskatoon, two in Regina for my tech groups. And, uh, and that was you know, probably 15 years ago. And I still uh, think of it today as, um, you know, pretty poignant uh, and, and, uh, the front of my memory and the stuff. And one of the concepts he advanced was something he called gravity forward. So this is a, uh, an interesting notion. He, he coined that phrase gravity forward, but it was at a time when he was leading the, uh, the seal unit that is, I think on the Eastern uh, seaboard, uh, the U S and it is designed to be a supply depot. Really? Uh, there are five permanent seal bases around the world and their job was to fill any orders that they came, uh, that they would send in for supplies, logistics, that kind of stuff. As he said, we supplied them with their beans and bullets. So uh, he said, I got there, and, and here's where the notion of, of gravity forward comes. He said, have you ever noticed in any organization where there's some size and a head office, he said, no matter how well-intentioned, over time, gradually, the center of authority gravitates to head office, that eventually the front lines are reporting to central command as opposed to the other way around. He said head office is there to support the front line. Uh, So in a corporate sense, you've got your regional offices or your storefronts or whatever it is, and headquarters is supposed to be facilitating making those centers perform well. Instead, what you end up with is the exact opposite, where forms are sent out and you have to check the boxes and fill in the squares or somebody from head office is phoning and saying, what about this? I can't check my box and I'm a bureaucrat. And if I can't check my box, I can't sleep at night. I can't get my promotion. I can't get my raise. So please, you tell me how you're going to solve my problem, right? Instead of the other way around. So it was an interesting observation. And it's one that I certainly seen in the corporate world. And, and we all have, I think, in any organization of size, you see it in government, you see it everywhere, where uh, eventually power seems to kind of congregate at the top and at the center rather than where it should, which is where you need most of the forces, which is at the front line. And so he had this uh, concept. So how did he respond to this? This became, to me, the most intriguing piece of all of this. So here's what he said. He said, from now on, no one in this unit, I mean the, this supply depot unit, can say no to an offshore request. Simple. He said, I'm the only one who can say no. So if you want to fill an order that comes in from the team in Morocco or Germany or wherever they are, 
you go right ahead and fill it. Uh, but if you want to say, nope, you're not allowed, you have to pass that on upstairs to your superior, who then can order it filled immediately. Or if they choose to say, no, not authorized, got to come to me. And he said, now, in the military, you have this benefit that the private sector doesn't have, which is I could issue an order. Uh, so then they have to follow it, right? That's the chain of command requirement. But it was interesting that that uh, it, he said it took less than a month until the frontline commanders, the people who are actually responsible at the bases around the world, were phoning them and saying, what have you done? It's like, like night and day dealing with you guys. It was the gravity had shifted, in his words, from headquarters to where it needed to be forward at the front line. And, uh, uh, you know, there's an, another story about um, Saskatchewan that comes to mind in that one. And, and that is uh, the, the time when Boyd Robertson, who was legendary in the business community, was a president of the Saskatchewan Chamber, and he was the uh, head of the Royal Bank in Saskatchewan, and he was quite a, uh, a figure. He carved a very wide swath, a very controversial guy, quite outspoken and willing to express himself. And, and I had the good fortune of uh, when I was early in career to write the speeches for him, uh, he had commissioned me on a freelance basis to do that. And I have to say, uh, you know, he got in trouble a lot for the speeches, but it wasn't me. Uh, uh, the speeches were fine. It was when he had lived. If he'd go off script, he'd get himself in trouble. And, you know, it was hilarious to watch. But uh, anyway, he he had this view uh, when he became the head of the bank. Uh, well, let me, let me just backtrack. I'll, I'll tell you a little backstory first. Uh, Boyd, recounted this to me and i had a chance to spend some time with him i did a television documentary in the early 80s or mid 80s uh, followed saskatchewan three business uh, three saskatchewan business people to china when china was just opening up we did a television documentary two-hour thing for uh, ctv and boyd was one of the three that we followed so i got to spend a lot of time with him uh, overseas and you know we were there for about 10 days and and lots of storytelling and exchanging of ideas and information. But he said when he first started out in the bank, he was born in southern Saskatchewan on a farm near Gravelberg and actually raised in southern Manitoba. But he went to University of Manitoba and got a business degree. And he said, so here I am. I got hired on by the Royal Bank, and I am one of 50 that got hired that year or something. And he said, we all look alike, right? All young, shiny fresh grads from business school with our blue suits and white shirts and blue ties. And, and he said, we're just a pack of all look alike. And, and he said, frankly, I was no better or worse a banker than any of them. I mean, I was just another number in, in the team. And then he said one day in his words, I had a brain cramp and I, I let my name stand for the federal conservative nomination in a Winnipeg riding. And he said, I got the nomination, and I ran against uh, then Jimmy Richardson, who was uh, Pierre Trudeau's defense minister. He said, I got my lunch handed to me in the, in the election. Uh, I went back to being a banker. But here's what happened. There's a lesson in this for all of for all of us. He said, I stood out. I put my head up out of the pile, and out of that 50, I was the one whose career took off the fastest. Why was I a better banker? Nope. Nope, not at all. It's because I took a chance, right? I stood out. I did something different. So fast forward to he's now in charge of Saskatchewan. And one of the rules that he put in place was he said to uh, the Royal Bank staff in the province, we're lenders, lend. You have authority to lend. You want to approve a, lo a loan, go right ahead. But if uh, one of our clients makes an application and you choose not to approve that loan, not allowed. You have to send it upstairs 
You can approve all you want, but you cannot reject a loan application. Now, look at the symmetry between that and and Bob Schultz's comment. You can fill all the orders from the overseas bases, but you cannot reject one. And I thought these two guys didn't know each other; they had never met. I, you know, and yet they were on the same page, and both had seen a very high degree of success in their careers. And I think there's a lesson in that for all of us: is that you know, do what you're supposed to do. Don't not do. Don't find the reasons not to do something. Find the reasons to do something. And finding the reasons not to do something is safe. And sometimes I think employees think they're helping or they're saying, be careful of these potholes. And I think that's fair enough. You should do that. But you also should find a way around the pothole. Don't just present the potholes to your management, to your leadership. You actually have to find a way to solve them. If you can't, then ask for help. That's where you send it upstairs. All right. So anyway, Boyd would do that. And he said, I'm the only one who can decline a loan in the province. So uh, before long, you know, stuff was getting approved all over the place. So the bank was starting to get a bit of a reputation for being approval oriented as opposed to not. And then came a legendary uh, one. And it's for an organization that isn't around anymore, but they they were one of the uh, uh, grain terminals and uh, they needed some money. And every bank in the province had turned them down and including the Royal, uh, but the Royal had this rule that, uh, you know, they couldn't just say no, they had to actually send it to Boyd. So it got to Boyd's desk, and he asked some questions no one else did ask. And in the end, he was prepared to grant the credit application. So here was the interesting thing. It was quite sizable, and it was more than his limit as the banker in Saskatchewan. So he had to fly to Montreal in those days. Earl McLaughlin was the uh, the legendary bank chair of the Royal Bank. And, and so Boyd was telling me the story. He said, I'm sitting in front of... Uh, of Earl and I said, Earl, I want to approve this credit, but it's it's bigger than my limit, so I'm here. And and here was the words he gave back to me. He said, "Here's how the meeting went. The chairman leans across the desk and says to me, Boyd, you're the only guy in this bank who knows anything about agriculture. So if you say it's approved, it's approved." And so he came back to Saskatchewan and granted the loan. And of course, the legend was made, and so much of the provincial. Uh, farming, you know, agriculture business moved to the Royal Bank in that period. So it became, you know, it sent a signal to the market that they were ready to do business. It won him market share and it won him reputation. And here we are 30 years later still talking about it. And there's a lesson in all of that for those of us in business that focus on what you do, not what you can't do. And if you, you know, if you're having trouble doing that, then enlist the team and say, I've we're looking at this obstacle. I don't know how to get around it. Help me. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think back to, to some of the other stories that Schultz told us uh, as the head of the SEALs. He said, you know, one of the tricks, uh, and this is a lesson that many of my tech members took away, uh, very difficult or more difficult to apply, but easy to understand. And he said, if you want to create a high-performance elite organization, make it hard to get in. So he said, we all have seen the movies about the Navy SEALs and how hard it is to get in and get through Hell Week and all that. I don't think they do that anymore. But anyway, in the, in the legend, that's what it was. And he said, it became one of, we would attract the kind of people who said, like, hell, I can get over that obstacle. You just present it to me and I'll show you how I can beat that. You, be, you start to appeal to people who have a high sense of performance. Now he said, inside the SEALs, once you make it there, everybody wants to be on SEAL Team 6 which is the, 
you know, the, the front end or the pointy end of the stick that they make the movies about. And, uh, and sort of jokingly, you know why they call it SEAL Team 6 is because they want the enemy to think there are five teams that are better than that one. And, uh, and, and it's psychological warfare, if nothing else. But he said he was on 6, and he was one of the officers on 6. He was, I think, number 3. And he said, you know, one in four Navy SEALs who applies makes it to be on SEAL Team 6. So you know how hard it is to get into the SEALs to start with. Well, we start with that universe or that pool, and only one out of four of that pool can make it. So he said, we knew we had the best of the best. And he said, as a leader, we didn't really delude ourselves into thinking that we were in charge, that we were controlling them. These were people who had, they were, uh, they took a lot of initiative. So our job was really to kind of manage that initiative as opposed to, uh, directed. So he, he said, sometimes we, in leadership roles there, considered ourselves just to be managing unguided initiative. So he used the metaphor of a stagecoach with the world's best thoroughbreds on it. And they were running flat out, and we have the reins. And he said, but don't delude yourself. We're not really in control. We're just kind of steering and trying to keep it on the road. So we didn't go around and blow stuff up all the time. So, so he said, go from there. I was transferred to the Navy SEALs unit in Panama, where our job was to instruct special forces from Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, those places that were adjacent to uh, Colombia fighting the cartels at that time. So he said, our, under strict rules, we could not engage. So our guys were not the pointy end of the stick if that we were teachers we would teach people how to fight we didn't do the fighting and he said i left i left seal team six and went to this group so at six i'm pulling back on the reins trying to contain the energy i get there i got teachers i have to blow energy into them i have to pump them up because they're pretty laid back he said they're all seals so in your organization you'll have you know the sales units out there pushing you might have some other unit that's actually just kind of like lollygagging and you have to contain one and and push on the other and and there were some great leadership lessons in this and and for him it was not less about inspiration more about observation and and understanding and then bringing some clarity to what the mission was about and to uh, help move it forward with Robertson it was really one of uh, walk the walk, right? I'm going to be, you You have all the authority in the world to approve a loan, which is what you were hired as a lender, not a non-lender. And if you look at your job title, right? So I'm going to empower you to do your job. And if you want to reject something or to say no to a customer, not allowed. You have to come to me. I'm going to be the keeper of that. One distinct thing that I take from leaders, good leaders, really good leaders, and there's many styles of them, but situational awareness is right up there in, in terms of they can assess a landscape, understand all the parts that are moving and everything that's needed. And just if I, if I pull in a Churchill quote on this one, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And when you look at those great leaders, good times, bad times, downsizing, growth, whatever it is, it's that situational awareness, the agility to be able to move with the times and to listen and engage with people in the way that they need to be engaged. I would agree with that. And and I would carry it even one step further. And this is where know thyself comes into it, is that there are also – uh, not just situational awareness, but there's situational leadership. There are times, you know, Churchill's a good example. Uh, he became prime minister 
as the war is getting rolling. And the day after the war, basically, they punted him. So he was a wartime leader, and it hurt him that, you know, this was the reward I get for for that was to be uh, disavowed by the electorate. But I think you need, you know, there are leaders who are uh, built for a situation. Uh, there are some who are turnaround artists. When the turnaround's done, get out of the way. Hand it over to someone else. I mean, you need to understand some of this in your own inner core but that's what boards of directors are for too is to understand that kind of stuff and there will be times when you need a leader who is adept at growing things there'll be another time when they're good at managing there'll be times when you have to be defensive and a defensive leader is not going to flourish in an up market but an up market character is not going to do well in a when you need to play defense so there is uh leadership styles and there are ways of doing things and often leaders need to understand that themselves and sometimes we look at organizations and say why do they change leaders so frequently sometimes they put the wrong piece in the puzzle and they have to make a change and sometimes you know a person for their time and that time has come that is for sure sometimes it's a great leader who's had great success in a previous organization exactly. comes into a new one exactly. and it just isn't a fit no, for they where they're at that time yep, move on yeah. to the next one yep yep, yep. Paul, thank you so much. This has been truly enlightening. Um, And to you, the listener, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Saskatchewan Matters and understanding how many of these stories really do relate to us here in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan Matters is produced by Martin Charlton Communications. Do share these insights that power Saskatchewan with your friends and colleagues. Saskatchewan Matters is proud to be a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network.